For episode 51 of the podcast, we talked to Christopher Andrus. Chris and I have been friends going all the way back, if you've been following my career, to the Radio X days when he was a professional musician, now owner of the Mitten Brewery, all three locations, and the Mitten Foundation and their philanthropy arm. On this episode, we talk a lot about philanthropy. We talk about his new book, Beyond the Bottom Line, and the difference between the traditional models of giving and perhaps a different lens by which we all can give more impactfully to our surrounding communities. So I hope you dig episode 51 of the Incredible Halt podcast. There are aspects of my personality that I can't control. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The Incredible Halt Podcast. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret. I'm always angry. Don't tell television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. The Incredible Halt. Besides, nobody's getting hurt. Podcast. Maybe if I can control it, I can use it. Hear the music. Christopher, how are you? I'm good. It has been, I mean, you and I have known each other a long, 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 long time, but we are here in the mitten the week of Small Business Saturday to right. talk about the book, which is called Beyond the Bottom Line. First of all, uh, I, I wasn't quite sure how I wanted to start this, so I want to start, obviously, since we're in the mitten, by apologizing uh, about your Tigers this year. I'm really sorry. Yeah, it was it was a long year. <laughs> <laughs> As a Cubs fan, I, I can appreciate your year. Um, but, but I remember worst years, to tell you the truth. So. <laughs> yeah. But I... I I did want to start by saying, is it appropriate to cry in a business book? Because I, I felt like this book is is fascinating in a number of ways. Well, thank you. Um, because, and I, I was going back and forth with you about, um, I, I ended up going through it about two and a half times, mm. right? Because the first time, um, it was a bit like a James Patterson novel where I'm like crying every five minutes. And then like, <laughs> well, because, you you know, there are lessons in here. Sure. But then the, you know, the parables that you're using out of your real life are all touching and in some ways hard to read right sure and that that was i mean that was honestly one of my goals was let me try to i mean not to make you personally cry but uh there were de- there's definitely it's full of my pain certainly but you know it's that's also about the redemption of that and figuring out uh, i wanted it to be a warts and all telling of how we arrived at where we are today and, and most of the lessons that that we learn are, are painful otherwise we don't really learn them but the other thing that struck me about the book when you you have a more clinical reading of it right the first time mm-hmm. i'm reading it oh my buddy wrote a book right so you're like <laughs> right. you're like a happy puppy and you're going through it. but the second time you're like well why doesn't everybody do this stuff sure. right which I, I think is also probably the point of the book yeah is, that, was, that was what motivated me to write it was, and so we, before we get to December of 2017 when this process I assume that's the dates at the end is that yeah. the, how long it took okay so before we get to the middle of December where you're putting pen to paper how long is this stuff kicking around in your head so as a parent of two little ones I my only time in my life that's mine is like between <laughs> 9 and 10 o'clock p.m. you wrestle the kids to bed and uh, my wife would usually fall asleep with one of the kids. Yep. And, uh, and then she'd take her an hour or so to wake up. So I'd be downstairs typing on my computer. And I really just started writing blurbs about stories that I knew that I thought were relevant. And honestly, writing it was was fun and easy and relaxing. Strangulating it and editing it into a book was difficult. But I felt as though I had some stories to tell that I thought would be useful for other people in my situation. And... Uh, I really thought that it was a unique way to tell to write a book in the middle of your career, not at the end, right? You know, because that's a voice you don't often hear from. 
But then all of a sudden I felt super insecure about my lack of experience. You know, I had this imposter syndrome and all these problems with uh, my own psyche. But Yeah, but I, I mean, and I appreciate that. I obviously have appreciated that about you for well over yeah. the decade that we've known each other. But, like, that's just not true. Well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, what I mean, like the we're dark si- recesses of one's mind of in front co- of a laptop. Of course, right? But when but. you're by yourself, and that's the voice mm-hmm. that you hear, is the voice that, like, who am I to write sure. a book? Who am I yeah, to tell you? Why listen to this guy? Yeah. But when you're sitting in a successful business, as we are sure. right now, that is one of three locations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, there's no imposter syndrome, and I, and honestly, I think while there are plenty of people that want to talk about philanthropy, I I don't know that I've read a book. And I won't spend the whole time telling you how awesome you are. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's okay. <laughs> you but listening, I, mom? But, you know, but I, I haven't, it's, you don't often read a book that gets, pulls science and data in to tell a different type of the story, right? Sure. There's a there's a part in the middle, and I don't want to, like, go through the book page sure, by sure. page, but there's a part in the middle where you talk about toxic giving, and there's, mm-hmm. and there's a part um, either before or after that where you're talking about understanding that perhaps the way in which we all view canned food drives is sort of idiotic, right? Those are my words, not yours. But like when you, when you see it in black and white, you're like, well, yeah, that's sort of stupid because I do always give them, you know, green bean stuffing that I wouldn't eat, right? Like a lot of cream corn going to food banks. Right. And so, um, (laughs) the lessons in here are interesting. And, and over the weekend I was at an event, um, and I used one of them from sort of midway through the book where you're talking about the way in which you guys have, have built your philosophy. And it was uh, a friend of mine who was asking about their employer wasn't showing up at this thing or that thing. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, of course they're not because you don't understand the borders and boundaries because yeah, it hasn't been sure. clearly explained to you why they do X and don't do Y, right? Yep. I don't think it's because they hate you. I think it's because they have rules that you don't know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so can we talk about you and Max going through the process of figuring out not only your leadership style, which mm-hmm. clearly evolves over these 200 pages, absolutely. but your from the, the nexus in the business plan of philanthropy till where we are right now where you've got a, an operating foundation that does a, a trillion things a year. Sure. Well, I think that the the unifying thread between entrepreneurship and philanthropy is that you have to try something, judge it accurately, whether or not it was a success or not, or and then start over or or continue to improve. So I think that's that's certainly my mindset. And too often people are successful entrepreneurs that but they regress to really traditional ways of doing other things. Like they're entrepreneur and one entrepreneurial in one aspect only. But we thought about why don't we apply that same risk-taking mentality to giving? And, and the predominant wisdom, obviously, is that giving is losing. And I'm here to tell you today that it's not. Uh, but it took a lot of deprogramming, certainly, on our end. You know, you, you when you think about giving, you think about it as losing. You think about it as this is what I do with the money I, that's left over. And as a small business owner, you're never looking at the bank account and thinking, wow, look at all this money. What am I going to do with it? <laughs> it's never like that. Uh, but that's how we look at it. We look at it as a repository for uh, what we don't need. And that's not, absolutely not what it, what it should be. And I think that we've spent the last seven years trying to show that this is why we've been so successful. It's not because I'm such a restaurant genius. I assure you that I'm not. Um, but honestly, just like entrepreneurship, it's about finding a better solution to every problem and, and you know taking constructive feedback. And we started it, I'll be honest with you, giving, that is, in a very traditional way. We made a commitment to it. We didn't actually understand what meaningful giving looked like. And we sort of stumbled our way through it the last seven years and unlocked a lot of really important realizations uh, along the way. And that's how I think we've arrived at such a successful point in our seventh year here in business. 
And can you maybe dial, you know, dial it down a little bit to that moment where you start to understand the difference between traditional giving, we're going to give X amount to X event and sure. walk away to when you're like, no, this, this we've unlocked this part of, we've unlocked this level, sure. right? Yeah, honestly, it, uh, I, I think back to Comprehensive Therapy Center. So uh, Jean Sobar, and I read about her in my book. She's my, she's my hero. Uh, <laughs> Too often, a business approaches a nonprofit and says, "We see that you did this. We want to give you money. Uh, we want to. We care about this cause." Uh, and what we did when we talked to Jean is she told us what her challenges were, and she says, "Yeah, it's easy for me to get money for this, but not for this." And I was like, "Huh? Yeah, I was thinking about what was in it for us this whole time, and I didn't realize you need uh, to fund these non-sexy aspects, operational aspects of your business." And uh, I don't know, it was this realization that too often we try to direct a narrative. It's a very paternalistic way of doing it. Businesses think that since they're successful, they know what's best in everything. You know, we, well, we'll give you some money. You should be happy to get it. And uh, you can do this with it, you know, buy some winter coats for the kids. But a homeless shelter will tell you they don't need coats. They need stuff. They need money for operational costs. Sure. So the more and more we partnered, we just heard earnest feedback from our nonprofit partners and it was really about what their challenges look like and not that and they every time we talked to one honestly about what they encountered it, we realized that we were wrong in the way that we approached it so we started looking at it as how can we be partners with these nonprofit um, companies and not benefactors because when you start with that I'm a benefactor relationship it's it skews it, it skews your perception of it, it skews the usefulness of your gift and it doesn't create a long-lasting so I don't, I don't know if I can boil it down to one particular moment, but I remember that conversation with Jean telling, as she described her challenges to us and how much I did not appreciate or think about her perspective when we approached them in the first place. And I, I think that kind of runs through the whole book is changing your perspective in every one of these you know, iterations, yeah. right? When, when you guys move from national pseudo loco to hyper local to sure. back to national right, right like yeah. you know this, this sort of wave of of understanding of what the the employees are interested in and how you guys can help sure in all these facets and coming uh to some realization of what sort of spheres of influence you guys are going to have sure. as an entity right you're going to have the one here on the west side mm -hmm. you're going to have the you know in the book there's one that ends up out west but you'll have these little pockets where you guys have an impact because you know what you're doing at this sure. point i think that's one advantage that small businesses have is we have this intimate relationship with our staff there's not all these silos you know it's it's me i can walk in every room in this building in 10 seconds and i you know know everybody by name and uh so the staff changes a lot too it's a restaurant business we do we do better than most in terms of turnover but uh so the cultural aspects of the business change a lot too and the more we listened to our staff and the more the staff changed, the more our philanthropy changed, and we were smart enough to be flexible with the mission statement. Because like you said, we started off, we let our investors choose our early nonprofit partners. Sure, which you had which, to do, right? Which was a huge perk for them. Yeah. It, got, it unlocked a bunch of money for us that we, I don't think we would have gotten otherwise. But, you know, they chose national charities. They Everyone has a friend who has, or a family member that's had cancer, so your mind immediately goes, well, we'll give it to the American Cancer Society. And, which is which is fine. I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing that, but certainly we don't have a connection to that organization. Our right. staff doesn't. And uh, when we're asking our customers to participate in something like this, if they feel disenfranchisement from us, they're going to feel it too. So we realized early on that when we did local nonprofit partnerships, everyone responded way better. And we realized, okay, this is where our platform is leading us. We're a local gathering place. We've got people who live locally. Obviously, this is uh, where we should be. But like, like you said... 
with a younger staff now, they care more about, or at least as much about issues abroad. So now we started doing some national campaigns. So it, it's, it's crazy how quickly it evolves. And, and I want to jump off there in a, in a couple ways and, and ask a couple questions. First, like, what you guys just celebrated an anniversary this past weekend, yep. right? Um, and what, what are some of the struggles you guys are, are experiencing now, seven years into this? Because as, as you get to the end of the book, um, it's not rose-colored glasses by any stretch of the imagination, sure. but you get the sense that like it's dialed in, right? We've got a direction. We, you know, sure. we're on the road. We're able to keep mm-hmm. the car on the road, you yep. know, and pay the bills. But what are the struggles seven years in? You've got three locations. Um, it, what's that like for you guys? Well, def- the struggle now, I think, is industry is our industry. You know, the brewing industry. The wind's been on our back the first five years. Like when we started, everything was was easy. Uh, and even and since we started the whole industry has changed. Like we made a lot of mistakes. We didn't have good beer in the beginning, but everyone forgave us for it. They knew we'd get our footing right. It took us about a year to figure it out. Can I stop you there just for a second? Mm-hmm. Is that is that standard? Like it was. It's not now. No, 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 no. I mean like do typically when a brewery opens, do they struggle in that regard? Like is that the hardest part is going from Definitely. home brewing to Definitely. scale? And and most it would be nice to be in a position where uh, you could make a few batches, dump a few batches, figure it out. But by the time you open or you're ready to open, it's usually six or seven months after you were supposed to open and you've been writing checks for rent and everything right. like that. So you're, you have the gun to your head for money. So you usually open well before you're supposed to, uh, which so, is what we did for sure. So I cut you off, but you, so yeah. the wind was at your back. You, you... Yeah. So it, since then, you know, for anyone following the Grand Rapids, your, you know, the craft beer industry in general, but specifically uh, in Michigan, double digit growth has become single digit growth now. Everything's slowing down. You're seeing a lot of closings. There are no surprises, but you're certainly seeing uh, more places close. You're seeing big breweries consolidating and uh, you know, trying to make their businesses more efficient. You're seeing the decline of, of longtime popular brands like Fat Tire and uh, Dogfish Head 60 Minutes. Like These were the beers when I was sure. starting yeah, out, yeah. and now you don't really hear about them anymore. Everything's hyper-local, neighborhood-based. So the industry's changed. And, you know, we're trying to change with it. We're trying to figure out what our place is. And every day that goes by, I realize how much our giving work looms in our success and in our future success. Because the younger the customer, the more they care about what a business does. And and not just in terms of optics. You, You know, the more you walk the walk and talk the talk, have transparent, good relationships with your vendors and staff, the more you're rewarded in the marketplace. Uh, And honestly, we're seeing a whole generation turnover in our customers. The millennials have come of age. They're the biggest buying generation ever to walk the planet. And they don't drink nearly as much as Gen X and baby boomers. Uh, But they do care more about where their money goes than I think anyone else. So it's, it's an interesting time. And how is the West Side right now? I love the West Side. I know you love the West Side. How, <laughs> how is it doing? Uh, it's great. I mean, there's uh, not a mile from here. There's huge development on Bridge Street. I, I like our street here. It's 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 one mile away, but it's it's its own world. It's its own little pocket. And I always say, if you've been in New Orleans, Bridge Street is Bourbon Street, and we're Frenchman Street. We've got the old <laughs> buildings, the native locations, yep. and uh, local uh, op- owner-operated companies over here. So I, I like our or vibe over here for sure. And like I said, we're doing this uh, a couple days before Small Business Saturday, and I wanted to get your, your take on that because that sort of feels like, as I'm, I'm reading through the book, that sort of feels like that could be a thing where you're like, 
eh, you could either be super into it and be like, meh, that's not really, it doesn't really make an impact. It's just sort of a marketing trope that American for Express sure. does, you know. Yeah, and honestly, and it's, it's weird for us because Saturday is our biggest day of the week. So it's not like we necessarily need the help on Small Business Saturday. Sure. Uh, but uh, definitely, I think it's a great thing. And there's certainly there are a lot of owner-operated sole proprietorships that don't normally see a lot of business on Saturdays. So I think it's better, it's more useful for other people. For retail, probably. Yeah, for yeah. sure, for yeah. sure. Well, and, you know, be, it... But if you want to spend your, spend your small business Saturday with us, then, then please do. <laughs> I don't as, <laughs> as you should. But, it, you know, in a world that's been amazoned if that's yeah, you know if that's a way sure. to describe it right it's i think it's very tough for them right even Absolutely. even your partner's the mitten state right where you're selling wares right yeah. like there's a trillion etsy stores that are trying to compete with that space especially when you're selling something that's more expensive mm-hmm. you know because you don't have the efficiencies of bigger companies and of the amazons of the world I, th- I think it's more useful and i for other for people like that uh, when you're going to make a conscious decision to go out of your normal buying patterns i think it's Better to find those, those small companies that that don't norm, that need the boost for sure. Awesome, and I think it's probably towards the end of the book. You're you're talking about uh, the climate of the country, right? Mm-hmm. And we're we're at an interesting time. Yeah. But but one of the things that that I took out of the book was, and I I have the book. I pulled out if I wanted to actually read the sentence. But <laughs> um, you talk about how going hyper local and focusing on the people in your immediate proximity is the way to sort of tamp down some of that tribalism that you see on Facebook specifically, yeah, sure. right? Cause you don't necessarily see it on Instagram or LinkedIn or Snapchat, but you yeah. certainly see it. The fiery mob is on Facebook. Yeah. And no the fiery mob is mad about everything, right? Yep. They're mad about your IPA as, as they would the sweater you're wearing as the right. Like, um, <laughs> the sweater angers a lot of people. Yes. Tell you the truth. I, well, I'm sure it does. Um, but you know, this idea of hyperlocality and understanding that the people in your direct proximity have more of an effect on you than yeah. anything else in the world is a staggering lesson that I got out of the book. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, you think about, I'm a big madman fanatic. You think about how companies used to sit there in their perch and manipulate customer attitudes. They could find the right campaign. They could convince the housewife to do this, you know, and it was all about the, uh, the dog leading the dog. And now I, I'm fully... I'm all in on the idea that we can't control anything. We're really just, a, you know, the, the mirror to reflect our staff and customers' interests because, you know, we're not a public held com- publicly held company, but certainly we're very much responsible to them. They're our stakeholders, and they're not going to sit idly by and let us make mistakes. They're not even going to sit idly by and let us do good things without still trying to inform what they think about them, which I think it's tough. It's certainly been a lesson for me to learn but uh, it shapes our company in much better ways it's every everyone's going to be a better company even though they have to eat it quite often on even small mistakes uh i think that's how did you guys get grounded to do that though because that's usually where um when we're talking about customer service and you shared a chapter from the book on your blog that ended up on linkedin right um and the interesting lesson in that and i will do specifics here because you've already shared it right so you don't need the but the interesting lesson here guys is so a group comes in and harasses one of your staff members yep. um, in a really inappropriate and horrific way. Mm-hmm. They don't leave her a tip. She goes to confront them. They have a fight out essentially in yep. front of the restaurant. Meanwhile, they go home. They call your manager who has no idea what's no going idea on. No idea what happened. Yep. And then does what every business does. I'll give you a gift card yep. to make it's it right. Reflexive course. And every business does it, right? Yep. Yep. Um, but you come in a day later, right? Mm-hmm. She's still 
distressed and distraught. Yep. You get the whole story. You turn off the gift card yep. and then write them a letter as to why they can't come back. Yep. And I posted the letter in the break room. And, and where does that come from? Right? Because this... And I, I mean, let me first say that I love it. I think the ability to fire your customer is a, an important lesson everybody needs For to sure. learn. If you own a business or if you're in sales, like there are people yep. that just don't fit. Absolutely. Well, I, th- I think the what leads us to inaction on things like that is this sense, this scarcity mindset. So, and the reason I shared that story in, in the book and on the blog was not to be like, hey, look at this cool thing that I did, but rather to say, listen, I was bad about this for the first six years. And I, just like everyone else, I remember working, I worked at Perkins Restaurant in Alpine in high school. And I remember all of the waitresses out back smoking and crying. Some guy at table three was being a jerk and they grabbed me and this and that. Then they would gather themselves, steal them, steal their faces, come back out with a wisecrack and uh, shrug it off. But I knew they were hurting, obviously. Sure, yes. Yeah. Obviously, this has been a, a part of restaurant culture for way too long. And even when we opened, there were some customers that were being like that, being inappropriate, that a few drinks, make something, make a comment that crossed the line, and I would sit there and go, what do I do here? And I would look the other way, because you're thinking, we're a fledgling business, do I want to alienate uh, this customer, you know, we don't have that many lunch customers, this guy's being a total jackhole, so I let it slide, and what a mistake that was, what a stupid, you know, scarce way of thinking that was, I'm not re- I didn't realize at the time, I could kick this guy out of here and my staff would love me so much more they'd, they'd feel respected and uh they'd be they'd buy into our giving mission so much more because that's one way that i can give to them right sure um so i, I came to the realization late but I, I really wanted to show that it's never too late to make that positive change so what was the end of that story did you ever hear back from them never wow never heard back that's so, interesting yeah I, I it was pretty harsh letter so <laughs> <laughs> i expected uh to get flamed but you know i it had enough, you know. It, it's really yeah, no. I, it, I'm like, I feel as though I'm I'm the mittens staff's dad sometimes, and I I really got pissed off and I was embarrassed about you know like I said that I hadn't done a good enough job in it in the past and it was well past time to make a big bold gesture. But I'm glad I did. Well, f- firing that customer cost me nothing. It gained me everything, and I just wanted to tell that story because you can't sit there and think about the nineteen dollars from the customer you're not getting. I mean, it's insanity. Well, and, and um, you do a great job around that part of the book, circling back to um, Bar Rescue or Restaurant yeah, Rescue, yeah. Wh- whichever one of the shows that bar Joe rescue. is, you know, whichever one he's doing. But, you know, I saw the same clip and he did the same shtick with Gary Vee and I was like yeah. blown away, right? That yep. the statistics of how you get somebody to come back in a restaurant is, ins- can you talk? Because they're insane. Yeah. You have to have three perfect interactions to even approach a 40% possibility of return for a fourth one more time yeah three Three flawless (laughs) customer visits before they'll consider uh returning for a fourth time and and when you break it and that seems crazy right you think you have one good experience you'll come back right wrong because people are fixed in their travel patterns Mm -hmm. and uh you've got to break their pattern absolutely and and you know not to circle back to small business saturday but if somebody can come in psychologically if they come in on a saturday mm-hmm. you got a better shot at those numbers than if they come in on a wednesday they've broke their pattern and something doesn't sure. work right because they're Absolutely. like i shouldn't have i always go to jimmy's place i shouldn't have come here on a monday right yep like, yep but on a saturday they're in a different point of view yep. they've come from the mall or they were up the street at bridge street and they'd sure. stop by and they're in a different buying cycle yep. you probably have a better shot at that but th- those statistics and that's what i love about businesses like yours is that 
and I think the whole book feels like this. The whole book feels like you're in a foxhole. Yeah. being shot at for seven years <laughs> mm-hmm. and you're still b- baking cookies for the people around you. Like, here, <laughs> right, does yeah. anyone want chocolate chip cookie? I know yeah. this totally sucks, but here's some cookies. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's what you sign up for, really, even though it's a, when you're like empathic like me, you're constantly getting your, your feelings hurt, but they regenerate fast because you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> they regenerate like Wolverine. <laughs> and then you realize, okay, there's a prescriptive course of action here instead of sitting around licking my wounds, even though I do lick my wounds for a while. Do you still do that? Absolutely. I, I'm so sensitive, uh, but I, you know, I, I I get there eventually. So it's it's tough. Does, Some do you find it? Do you find it takes it longer longer now, or are you quicker on? No, I'm I'm definitely quicker on it now because you've seen pretty much every interaction by now. You know, the first time you you get your bad Yelp review, it's it disrupts your entire soul, and now you're like, all right, I think I know what happened here, or no, this person's wrong. They're being too critical, and I'm I'm gonna stand up for the staff and then right back and say, we're sorry you feel that way. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's just about realizing the all the different archetypes and having seen them. I don't know. It's uh, I mean, it still, still hurts. Some people can shrug it off. I can't. It makes me want to get active. What is Max like in those situations? I think he's definitely way cooler about it than I am. He's, he's Has more he always been like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's why we're business partners because <laughs> he's, he's good at the things I'm not and vice versa. He takes a very analytical approach, and uh, I either – freak out or go scorched earth so we're it, it's a good uh it's a good balance between the two of us and so what does 2020 look like for you guys what what's on the horizon i mean and for when like i don't know that i ever asked you this question when does the book actually come out so i am currently about 20 rejections deep from publishers so I'm are you gonna I'm, do it yourself i think so uh I'm, I'm fully prepared to yeah but i think uh you know i don't know i'm, I'm still trying to get some people excited about it i've so got a lot of really strong advanced praise from uh, Sam Calajone from Dogfish Head loved the book. He gave me a nice quote about it. Um, some really, some really well connected people. And our lovely mayor Rosalind Bliss wrote the foreword for it, and she's been a big supporter of it. So, uh, what's so what's the rejection process like? Like for people who you know, because what you're doing right is sort of. Melvillian in a way, right? Like sure. it's that Moby Dick moment, yeah. right? Where like everyone's like, I should write a book and, and here you've done it, you know? And, and I'm sure. like, I spend a lot, anytime I can bump into Rick Weiss, I talk to him for 30 minutes about this process just because I'm fascinated that sure. he's just like, I'm going to do another thing and here's the crazy thing I'm going to do yeah. and I put out another book. So, you know, you send these books out and what what come, what happens? Here's the, here's the problem. You can't send the book out. What? You can't you send, the send the book treatment? to anybody. You have to send. You can't even send that. So that's what I found. If I Is it get, a puppet show? What do you send it's, them? A, it's a bit of a puppet show. <laughs> If you can get someone, to, if I get someone to read my book, I think they'll they'll be like, oh, absolutely, I'm 100 percent behind. Wait, so this. I need yeah. to understand this: people who put books out into the world don't actually read the books they put out in the world before they approve. They do them? eventually, uh, but, but not at the you, beginning. Yeah. So here's what you do, <laughs> and it's it's I had to learn a lot about it. So you write your book, then you have to write a book proposal, which is sort of like a, an overview. Here's how my book is going to do. Here's the type of people that are going to buy it. You have to break them down by personality and demographic. You have to basically. Assure the now. Are you publisher gu- are you a, guessing at that point, or have you done research? Done research. Okay. I mean, you have to. There's tons of sample book proposals out there, but it's it's really it's really intimidating because you have to make a case for why your book is worth their time and money. It's kind of like uh, getting a record deal, basically, which I also didn't get. <laughs> but in, but at that, least in, at least in that world, they've heard the song for sure. Yeah, you don't have to write a treatment about what the but song. I can't even song. send that proposal. I have to send a query letter, which is like two paragraphs. That's an even more bottled down, and then they decide whether on how good those two paragraphs are, if they're gonna ask you for the proposal. Then you wait eight weeks. Then they might ask you for the manuscript. 
So you've got to go through layers and layers and layers, even wow. to get someone to crack open the first page. Wow. So it's it's really a, a weird process. And I'm, that sounds awesome. Yeah. So so kids, <laughs> write that book. And it's already it's already hard enough process to take your book from two paragraphs on Microsoft Word to being done. Everyone's got a book started, right? Or a lot of people. Yeah, no, 100%. And what, what I thought was interesting about this particular book is like, look, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm probably not telling anyone who's listening to this anything yep. they don't know. Like business books have a formula, yep. right? There's there's a premise of what I'm trying to tell you. Yep. Then there's case studies. Then there's a closing argument, yep. right? Yep. But the way in which you stream in this narrative and the, the way in which you tell time, mm-hmm. I found super fascinating. And I don't awesome. want to spoil it for anyone who's no, going to no. pick this up. But like, I'm glad that that worked because that was the hardest part. Because it's, it's bananas, yeah. right? Like it's very... Um, Stranger Things upside like you're going back and forth and yeah. back and forth and back and forth in a way that works sure um, because if you tell the story linearly then it's not I'm not I don't want to read that story because the, it's there's flashpoints along the way that I want to alert you know alert people to the signpost along the way but if I tell it as all the good stories are kind of at the end right <laughs> if I can go back and say well here's where we learned here's where this seed was planted in my brain then it, you know five years later we realize this and so while you're writing this sort of flashback manuscript it, it, did you was that the? Did you have that idea at the beginning, or as you no. start getting these stories down, you're like, "Well, in a in a row, this looks silly. Let's do, let's do this." I did that a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I you know I wrote the first sixty thousand words that I could think of, and then realized that <laughs> here's the sixty thousand I know. Yeah, I'll go yeah. Google some more and words. And I'm like, I nobody cares. This this story's stupid. This is, and I realized that as you're writing, you don't want to edit yourself when you're writing, right? You just want to bleh, word vomit it out. And then I realized, well, this story doesn't make sense. So actually, this should go earlier. So you really just like I said, puking it up, looking at it, and saying, "Okay, let's start to put together this puzzle." The Stephen Pressfield, right? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it was just a—it was a heck of a process. And I was trying to do—I didn't have any time to write a book, you know. It was, but I, I felt compelled to do it. It's not like I'm sitting around every day. I'm still very much in here, at the mitten. I say here because we're here, but nobody can see that. Uh, you know, I was wiping down tables this morning. I'm here every day doing it, so it's hard to find the time. But and what is your day to day like right now? Honestly, I don't need to be here as much as I am, but I feel compelled to. I know there's. I've got a little bit of a. Uh, I don't want to be seen by my staff as out of touch, counting my money yeah. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yep. I, I feel like it, it degrades everything that I try to do, uh, and also I'm not counting. I don't have any money, so I'm not counting my money anywhere. Uh, but I was gonna say about the book. It's really not my, my goal to make money. It's really my goal to get the story out. So however that ends up happening, if I self-publish it or not, you know, whatever. I'm not, I don't expect to see it on the show if it burns a noble, but if it does, that would be great. Well, it, it, look, it should be. Well, thank you. Right? Uh, well, because to your point, everybody has a book in them. Lots of people try to yep. do this stuff. Um, I just think the story's compelling. The, the end when we're talking about $33.33 yeah. and, you know, and the power in which every single small business, if they galvanized sure. what they could do is it's important because and, I think they I think they feel and I'm not speaking for all of them because I don't know all 30 million businesses obviously mm-hmm. but like I think they feel constantly attacked sure. right yeah you're always you know, if you like go to, you're, you're in the foxhole you're everyone's lobbing grenades and I saw this awesome graph it was about the uh, the joys and failures of entrepreneurship and it's just up down up down right up, down yeah over time you're going up but the setbacks are devastating and you know, call into question the whole thing. The highs are are crazy. The successes, uh, and it's it's if you're not an entrepreneur, it's hard to describe. But it's uh, you're never sitting there thinking, oh yeah, we're on autopilot now. We got to figure it out. That never happens. <laughs> but to your to your question about what's what's next for 2020, um, 
business-wise, you know, we're just going to keep doing what we do. But the the epilogue to my book, that 3333 promise, is what I want to focus on. Because if I can go off on a little digression here, we've always thought about philanthropy. I think everyone thinks about philanthropy. And I hate that word philanthropy because you think of the old mustachioed robert barons you think of yep. rockefeller and carnegie and these guys uh, you think of divestment and the whole point of my book is to say giving is investment and it's not only the purview of the rich retired billionaires it's something and i, and I use that thirty-three, thirty-three promise so what we're talking about here is if if every one of the 30 million biz, small businesses in america made a 33 dollar and 33 cent one-time donation it would be a billion dollars they could go to a singular nonprofit and actually move the needle on them accomplishing their mission instead of just maintaining the status quo. And I've got a lot of friends in the nonprofit sphere who, you know, fundraising is hard. It's probably the hardest thing in the world to do. And the uh, aging wealthy don't give their money to the right things, in my opinion. They give it to personal affinity causes. They give it to the college they went to. Sure. They don't give it to the people starving to death. And so you're seeing giving to meaningful causes going way down. And you're seeing tax sheltering and and uh, the rich giving to the rich more and more. And I don't think the small businesses necessarily all think of themselves as a part of giving in the, in the future of philanthropy, philanthropy, but I wholeheartedly believe they are single, singularly the future of philanthropy. And, and I, I think that's, that's 100% true because I think we, you know, we often, business owners, nonprofits, regular people, mm-hmm. just think, well, what, what can I do? Sure. Right. And you're seeing it right now. Like my my big pet peeve. It's not it's certainly not book worthy, but like my big pet peeve right now is you're about to see starting in probably the next 24 hours, millions and millions of pay it forward posts about Starbucks. Sure. Right. How many yep. times did we buy st- like a the whole idea of paying it forward is that no one knows that you paid it forward. <laughs> like that's the whole point of yep. paying it forward. B, I feel like you could spend that $6 someplace else if you actually wanted to make a difference this time. Like sure. if you want to do a holiday difference, there's a million ways that you could do it that isn't a, a peppermint mocha. No mm-hmm. offense to the peppermint mocha. No, it's but, but one of my favorites, right. but like you're, you're going to see this stuff because we have this, what you talked about early on, like we have this inverted relationship with giving where it's just an act for me. Sure. Right. Yeah. I'm. I'm one way give, giving. I'm going to give six bucks to Christopher behind me so that I can post on Instagram that I gave six bucks so that we could have 800 cars yeah. that didn't have to pay for their own Starbucks but ultimately paid for the person behind yeah. them. So there's really no savings, right? Yep. They're just paying for somebody that isn't them. Absolutely. Um, and most of the world lives on less than six dollars a day. Right. Yeah. But here's what I take from that. So and and that's that's what I'm talking about in that chapter about toxic giving. You know, is is this one way relationship with giving? But here's what I take from that is that people want to give. They have an innate desire sure to give. They, they cannot, desi- they cannot uh, ignore their desire to give. And it's my job to say, think about your platform and what you could accomplish with it and, and demonstrate it versus you know, decrying that. I'm saying, listen, the good thing here is that they want to give. And mm-hmm. How can we raise everyone's yeah. IQ about what, uh, what giving looks like? Because there's a lot of you know, a lot of smart business people have a very low IQ about giving. They don't understand what it looks like. They think it's enough to to give to anything, and then we can check the box we gave. Well, and, and I wonder, and this is kind of where I wanted to get to, to the, you know, because I've, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last three weeks since I've, I've had a copy, you sure. know. Um, it's like, I wonder if that habit comes out of studying the robber barons does it come out of the church system and nothing against the church system but sure. you donate every week and you have zero idea 
Yeah. Zero idea yeah, what happened. You turn it over and you and, then you, the and you have yeah. no idea what happened, right? Like occasionally they'll tell you they built a building sure. or they went on a mission trip or whatever, but by and large, week in and week out, you don't have no idea. Yeah. And to your point, if if a church made a graph similar to what the end of the book is, again, yeah. I won't spoil that, but like similar to the end of the book where they're going, today we spent $9 on this and $52 on this and $11 on yeah. this and Jimmy got, you know, and you walk away every week going, and some churches do do that, but the sure. mass do not. But if you did that and itemized every week what you spent money on, I think to your point, people would know what they're doing. I think you, that's the only way you can build a lifelong relationship with giving. Take it out of the realm of obligation or, you know, a lot of people, we look at giving as a toll for success. Sure. The, the BP has a big oil spill. They have to turn around and donate money to the affected areas because it's, it's, you know, it's the toll for their success and they have to, it's a PR nightmare and they can, you know, stem it by giving. But I'm trying to create a positive relationship with giving where it's not a purification of the wealth that you've uh, been fortunate to give. You're not trying to give to not look bad. You're trying to make it a part of your life. And small little actions like that, if you understand where they go, that bonds you to it. And I talk about the, the ice bucket challenge yep. in, in the book. And, and ALS, it's a great cause, right? So everyone dumps a bucket of ice in their head. They raise $115 million in one year by that ice bucket challenge. They try the same thing the next year, zero. They raised less than 1% of what they raised the year before because people didn't actually have a connection to it. They had a really facile social media connection to it they, they the, scientifically it was what they were addicted to was not als or giving they were addicted to dopamine and oxytocin abs- absolutely right? like yep. that's what they were addicted yep. to and that's what the clicks and the likes and everything gave them but they didn't have a real connection to lou Gehrig's disease very few people do uh thankfully but yeah so i i talk about it a lot about how, how do you create a long-term lifetime relationship with giving that, that's healthy what does it look like and the one thing that I that I was thinking about as I was reading through the book the second time was, and this is not an apples to apples comparison, but but I think it illustrates what you're talking about. What you guys have done here at the Mitten and putting giving ostensibly first, sure. and that has fed to your success. It mm-hmm. has fed to Oprah showing right, like all the right, things right. That, that happened. You come out of this moment, and if you look at if you go to video games, if you look at what Fortnite did, they did the exact same thing. Yeah. They gave the game away for free yeah. and made $4.2 billion last year. Yeah. They gave the product it's away. Lost, lost leader. Right. Right. Yep. right. But, but it's this understanding that if you invert the lens by which you see the world, Absolutely. you unlock these secret codes. Yeah. Right. They didn't go sixty nine ninety nine to buy the hardcover game and then I don't get any incremental revenue and i'm sure there were there were bean counters along the way that were, they were saying what are we doing now no right. let's not do this right we have to well and, and make it, money it takes some long some long-range vision well and that game had been in development since 2007 there's yeah. been versions of that since 2007 so similar to the iterations by which you guys are building this business and True. understanding how the foundation works with the business and the business with the foundation mm-hmm. i i just thought it was an interesting comparison to go these guys have blown up the video game universe by going yeah game free yeah, all this weird clothing that you're going to buy for twenty dollars a piece. Yeah. You do that stuff. We'll give you, let you play for free. Yeah. Um, it's that inverse to sort of unlock these secret yeah. codes. I think that's what's great about what I think the unifying thread there is that it's meeting people where they are. They're already in the video game world. You can flip their, you know, perceptions of what that relationship looks like from vendor to user, and they did. And and all of a sudden, it's a lifestyle for everybody. You know, and if they had pro- approached it in a very 
you know, uh, traditional, you pay us, you know, goods and services kind of exchange. I don't, I don't know if it would have happened. It's brilliant. Yeah, well, and you're not seeing it happen in yeah. the traditional world, right? Like, True. the the games that are popular, Madden, Call of Duty, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I know you didn't expect to talk about video games today, but, like, <laughs> okay. you know, the list has stayed the same for a decade. Sure. For a decade, yeah. it has stayed the same. Fortnite disrupts it completely. Right. Yeah, flips on its head. And, to you know, if Epic Games, who owns Fortnite, wanted to do something the way in which you think the world, mm-hmm. right? They could give a, you know, sell a skin where all of the money goes to whatever. And sure. at 20 bucks a skin, they've built a community that will do that. Yeah. In the same way that part of the way you talk about giving in the book is that people want to come here and they want to drink beer and eat pizza. They don't want to drink beer, eat pizza, and then give. Absolutely. That one layer of removal handicaps effort. We expect the virtue of something to make people change their patterns. Yeah, and I think why we've been so, so, so successful, like you just said, is we're meeting people where they are. They like coming here. Let's tie that into the experience instead of asking them to totally change around what they do. I, I tell a story in the book that, that you're referring to about we had we asked people to come in and also bring a canned good. Nobody did it. Right. They wanted to give money through the experience, not also swing by the store and get a canned good. Because it's not a reflection of their morality. You're at, yeah, no, you're adding friction to their day. Absolutely. Okay, so you know, I, I know you you've got a little bit of a, a back injury, so I want to keep you here as <laughs> okay. you know. But I do want to kind of wrap up how people can get involved in this right sure. the book isn't out yet so mm-hmm. you can't grab it yet but the website is up and people can yeah. you know we've got and i've been sharing excerpts excerpts from the book on my blog such as christopher andrus a-n-d-r-u-s dot com and until it comes out i'll, I'll be sharing something probably once a week awesome the book. and so um let's talk about the 333 promises yeah. you know how can people get involved in that too um really it's about for right now, I have, I have a, a section on my website about it, but read about it and think about the potential that exists there. I'm really trying to just change people's mindset about before I actually turn this into a real program. It's really about think about the multiplying power of these 30 million companies. 99.9% of companies in the United States are small businesses. And most wait, of them wait, have. Wait, what? Yeah. Do that uh, again one more time. 99.99% of organized <laughs> companies in America are small businesses. Okay. Less than one one-hundredth of a percent is a big company by, by type, not by wealth or, you know, sure. by, by organizational yeah, yeah. Yep. type. And um, start thinking about what the future of philanthropy looks like because I don't, I, I'm, not a, I'm not doing the work, right? It's really about directing resources, and I think that's what the role of small business plays. The nonprofits and NGOs of the world, these great organizations, still have to do the work. But they're, they're, they're suffering in terms of fundraising. And how do we seed these into the future so they can eliminate cancer, so that they can do these things instead of having to maintain that status quo of fundraising? And uh, that's, that's really what it's about is destroying the, the archetype of what we think uh, philanthropy is. So I, I'm content to, to leave it at that for now. Read it. Go to my blog and, re- and read about the 3333 promise and you know, start to look at things differently. Christopher, thank you. Thank you. Have a great week. 